On October 7, 2019, after an international search, we welcomed our new editor-in-chief here at the Canadian Medical Association Journal. This is an exciting time for the journal, a time for new opportunities and fresh energy. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, and I used to be the interim editor-in-chief of CMAJ. I was in that position for three and a half years, and I'm excited to hand over the reins to Dr. Andreas Lapakis. He comes to us with a wealth of knowledge and experience, both in a clinical setting and in the world of research. We have a very special CMAJ podcast for you today. I have Andreas sitting with me here in Ottawa, and we're going to get to know him a bit better through a series of questions, some casual and some maybe a little more pointed. Welcome, Andreas. It's truly wonderful to have you here. Well, it's great to be here, and uh, you know, thanks, Diane, for the three and a half years you've uh, worked as uh, interim uh, editor-in-chief. Uh, doing anything for three and a half years is... Uh, is quite something on an interim basis. So thanks very much. Oh, it was my pleasure. Now, a fun fact for people listening, um, may not be aware that Andreas was my boss Mm -hmm. in the past. He was the uh, head of ICES um, when I was at my very first publication, Informed. Yeah. And actually, I was talking to David Naylor about that just the other day, and I actually couldn't remember the name of Informed, I'm shocked to tell you. But uh, yeah, I remember that was a a publication that went out to uh, mostly family physicians, I think, in Ontario, wasn't it? Yeah, we had, it reached uh, family physicians in the province, and we were tried to take sort of difficult clinical topics, bring all the research together, and take, for example, you know, a full 10 inches deep of research and distill it down to two yeah, pages. Yeah. So it was it was super fun. And it's uh, so exciting that you're here and, and taking over um, in this position. So it's quite wonderful. So uh, at the time that we're recording this, Andreas, you've been here for not even two full days. Um, it's all quite new. What are your first impressions? Well, I, I guess impression number one is that I I knew I'd have a steep learning curve, but uh, the, the the learning curve of uh, of running a journal is really super steep uh, for someone like myself who's never done that before. That's impression number one. Um, impression number two is I'm super glad that you're here to guide me through this over the next uh, month or two, so I can uh, really sort of take over on my own and. I guess impression number three is uh, what a great uh, group of people we have working here at the CMAJ. And actually, that's certainly for me personally, I've made the right decision to make a, a career switch uh, quite late in my career, actually, and, and uh, really looking forward to it. Well, and you know, an interesting thing is that, uh, Andreas, you are actually a member of the editorial advisory board right. for the CMAJ, yeah. so you're not coming at this um, without knowledge of CMAJ in the past. Yeah, and, you know, I guess my most intimate knowledge of the CMAJ, I actually I was thinking I should go back and look, but I'm pretty sure I'm right to say that I've been a co-author on at least 20, if not 25 papers in the CMAJ over my career. So obviously know the journal well from point of view of a researcher submitting something or someone submitting a commentary. And, uh, you know, if I look back at my career, uh, Dave Sackett was probably the most influential kind of mentor I've had in my career. And, you know, Dave, uh, I think, led, uh, I think it was called a critical appraisal series in the CMAJ uh, way back when in the 1980s. And that was very influential to me. I guess I was a resident at the time, uh, just, you know, making me think about how to interpret uh, research and the importance of research actually informing our, our, our practice. So 
Um, yeah, I've had a lot of experience uh, with the CMAJ, both as someone submitting stuff, but also as a as a uh, interested reader. And you know, yesterday was the debate for the federal election, and and uh, at the same time yesterday, um, there was a lot of there. I think should have been a lot of talk about pharmacare, but national pharmacare, but there wasn't. But you know, a, a credibly important article about uh, national pharmacare, uh, co-authored by Steve Morgan and Danielle Martin. Um, you know, that's the kind of paper in the CMAJ that I, I think has really very much uh, informed some really important policy discussions in, in the country. Yeah, and absolutely. We certainly, um, over the past three and a half years, Pharmacare has been something that we've paid a lot of attention to in the journal, had research, commentaries, analyses, these type of articles to help inform the debate right. um, that, 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 that goes on. So maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? I was actually born in uh, Quebec City, uh, the son of uh, actually a refugee. My dad uh, fled Latvia in the Second World War, ended up getting TB in a, in a camp in, Switzerland, in uh, Germany, and then went to Switzerland to recover in a sanatorium where he met my mom, who was a, a, a nurse, actually. Uh, and so they uh, they immigrated to uh, Quebec City, uh, moved to Kingston, Ontario when I was about one year old, and then basically I grew up in Kingston on Kingston and in Ottawa. Uh, and uh, you know I've actually studied or worked at six of the med schools in the country. Um, so I've been around the country a, a bit from uh, from that point of view. Uh, my dad uh, died actually quite a, well 19 years ago, but my mom. Uh, is still living in Toronto, a 93-year-old lady with um, with progressive dementia. So we're sort of dealing with that, which is something that I know many listeners and Canadians are dealing with. But yeah, that's a bit of my background. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about your your family now. Sure. So uh, you know, married uh, to Karen, we met in the ICU in London, Ontario, when we both cared cared for you know patient together. I first asked her out at at three in the morning and. Uh, been married since 1986, so it's one of the things I'm actually most proud of, actually, for, you know, been together for a long time. Two kids, uh, Megan, my oldest daughter, is a uh, second-year pediatric resident at McMaster, and uh, and Dylan, my son, uh, is uh, finishing his second and final year of occupational therapy at U of uh, T. So it sounds like health care is in the family. Yeah, my mom actually was, uh, my dad was, uh, his final job, he was actually a magistrate and a lawyer in Latvia, and his law was no good when he came here, and he was 42 years old when he arrived in Canada, could hardly speak English and not very good French, and so obviously law was, like, redoing his law in, in his mid-40s was, was out of the question, but he, he actually became a librarian, and we moved to Ottawa uh, in the 1960s, and Dad eventually became the chief librarian of the Department of National Defense. So that's a non-medical um, uh, healthcare background. But my mom was a was a nurse, and she was actually the worked at the Ottawa General at the time, and and um, in neonatology, and and developed a a real reputation for being the expert that moms who had trouble breastfeeding would go to. Uh, and I remember as a teenager, like being sometimes embarrassed, you'd walk through a mall with my mom and then some lady would come up and say, oh, Kathy Lapakis, you just, you know, you saved my life and taught me how to breastfeed. And, you know, this sort of like geeky 13-year-old kid sort of going like, this is too much information, right? Um, but yeah, mom and mom uh, worked as a nurse till, well, into her early 60s, yeah. So describe yourself in three words. 
Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, number one is not a description myself, but I, I think is, I think about it increasingly, it's like unbelievably lucky. Uh, like, you know, you could say my parents arrived quite poor in Canada, so we were immigrants and not wealthy. But man, compared to people that are born in Syria right now or born across the world, um, like, and, and lucky in terms of just pure luck in terms of where, who my parents were and where I was born. Uh, and then really lucky to have become an MD, to be honest, because uh, being an MD has just allowed me such a privilege to look after patients. Like there's nothing like good patient encounters. There's nothing like that. Um, but also has allowed me incredible flexibility to change my research career, to have a, a lot of responsibility as an administrator, um, now taking on a new job at the age of 65. Like how many professions allow you you know, that luxury. So lucky would be number one. I think I'm pretty intellectually curious. I just, uh, and, and, you know, beyond healthcare, I would say like the only journal I read on a medical regular basis is the New Yorker, like not the New England Journal, not the CMAJ, I'm embarrassed to say, but the New Yorker. Um, and, uh, and so I like, I, yeah, I'm kind of interested. And then it's both a weakness and a strength of mine. I think most people if, that know me well would say I'm kind of brutally honest uh, sometimes maybe a little more than I should be, but I think in general most people would say that it's pretty clear where I think and stand on things. So maybe those would be the, the three, lucky, intellectually curious, and honest. Well, I think those are all really, really good <laughs> words when we when we look at somebody who's in the job of yeah. editor-in-chief of CMAJ. We hope you're going to be lucky and you're <laughs> yeah, going to continue sure I will. <laughs> to be lucky going forward. But, you know, I think the the whole idea of being intellectually curious to be into being um, honest, I think it's, it's, it's so critical, particularly at this point in this situation where we find ourselves politically um, on the world stage. Now, Maybe your major hobby is writing research papers, um, but uh, do you have others? Yeah, I mean, I think it's maybe not a hobby, but it's something that consumes a, a great deal of my life is uh, actually my dad, um, when he lived here in Ottawa, uh, he worked for the civil service in the days when you had to retire when you're 65. And that annoyed him no end. Like he was actually very devastated by that because he felt he'd come to the country, worked his way up to the top of his career, which was he ended up being a chief librarian of the Department of National Defense. And then two years after he got that job, they told him from his point of view, like, you're done, right? So he actually grew up on a farm in Latvia near the Russian border. So he was smart enough to realize he would drive my mom crazy if he didn't have something else. So he bought a 100-acre dairy farm uh, near a place called Cobden, which is about an hour and 15 minutes drive from here which actually Karen and I now have inherited as an only kid. We've sold 70 acres. So we have a 30-acre farm on a lake, um, and I have, uh, which we go to regularly when I've not been on clinical service. I actually usually go up there Thursday night, work up there for Friday, like work not on the farm, but work, work. Uh, and then, uh, you know, drive back to Toronto on uh, Monday morning. That schedule will change a bit with this job now. But still, that farm is just very important to me for a, bunch of reasons. I'm obsessed with my big vegetable garden. Um, I probably shouldn't say this, but I bought a 22 because the groundhogs were 
eating my garden. So I'm, I used to be the only male on the, on the dirt road that didn't have a 22, but now I have one. Um, but, um, you know, it's just the, even when I'm working up there and I'm looking out over the lake, it's kind of a little, I, I don't know, somehow it's kind of spiritual is probably excessive, but it, I, I just really love being out there. I love the, I love all seasons up there. I love cross country skiing and, the thing I missed the most about not living in Ottawa anymore was, believe it or not, the winters, because I love cross-country skiing in the Gatineau. So, you know, the farm is a place where I read The New Yorker. Uh, in the winter, you know, we heat it with uh, wood that I've chainsawed myself and the trees I've cut down. And, and so that that's just a very, very important uh, place for me. Saw the Raptors win their championship in the uh, on the couch upstairs and then, you know, had a we the North flag that I flew on my riding lawnmower the next day. Uh, so it's a super important place to me. Yeah, we all need a happy place. And I mean, for me, it's a, it's my family's cottage, been in the family for years. And, and for those who follow Andreas on Twitter, uh, we'll see that he regularly tweets out pictures of himself at, <laughs> at his farm with his various vegetables, uh, vegetables yeah. and, and other, <laughs> other things. So, um, so, you know, you grew up, you know, your, your family came from Latvia. Um, how many languages do you speak? Well, that's embarrassing. Um, the short answer is really well one, English. Um, I can get by in Swiss German quite well because my mom came from Switzerland. And my dad never, ever went back to Latvia. Uh, and I actually just went to Latvia the first time two summers ago, actually. Uh, but my mom, um, my parents couldn't afford to go back very often. So initially they went back every, mom went back with me every five or six years. And then, you know, once I had the money to go back, I would go back. I was very close to my uh, my aunt, my mom's sister, and we would go back actually with the kids about at least once a year. Uh, so I can speak Swiss German, not great, but I can get by, and which means I guess I can speak a bit of German. My biggest disappointment of being working in Ottawa professionally for nine years at the Ottawa Hospital was my plan was to become fully bilingual, and it just never happened. I, you know, registered for courses, and then just you know somehow the the busyness of everyday work uh, just kind of got in the way. So, so I'm, you know, all of my good friends in Switzerland speak four languages fluently, right? English, French, German, and Italian. And I'm like super embarrassed that I don't even speak the uh, second national language of Canada. Uh, so, but there it is. Well, you know what you mentioned before about being able to reinvent yourself. Well, yeah. this is an opportunity <laughs> to reinvent yourself. Yeah. The other thing I have to say is my husband is German, and he would argue that for someone who speaks Swiss German, you don't speak German, German. at all. No, I'm sure he's... So I just had to, th I had to throw that in, you know, for, for him. So we've, as we've been talking, you've been definitely showing passion about a lot of things. But I've got to go, so, so beyond the farm, and I think, what lights you up? What are you really, really passionate about? Um, I mean, I think... I think professionally, the thing that has lit me up the most um, is the opportunity to uh, interact with and mentor young people. And, you know, when I was younger, that used to be, uh, you know, medical students or residents. Now that I'm kind of an old fart, it's, it's actually mid-career clinicians or researchers as well as uh, residents and students. And, you know, I when I sort of think back in my career, you know, the, the New England Journal papers and Lancet papers and CMAJ papers are great. Um, but actually the the work that, you know, people like Mohammed Mamdani, Amol Verma, Michelle Schulzberg, I could just go on and on, are, have produced or are going to produce is actually going to be way, way bigger than that, right? Uh, and so, uh, and I, 
you know, again, as the older I get, um, I sometimes think that I'm actually learning more from these folks I'm mentoring than the other way around, right? Because they, they're coming at life in a much different, in their professional life in a di much different way than, than I am. And so, like, Irfan Dalla, I think, has taught me more about, like, how to do Google searches and stuff than anybody I know, even though I'm supposedly one of his mentors, right? Uh, so I think mentorship um, is the thing that, that really, really has lit me up, to use your term. One of the exciting opportunities that we have as editors is an opportunity actually to mentor authors. And that's one of the things that we've done quite a bit in the journal where you'll have, you know, pair a, a medical student or a resident gets paired with a, a, a practicing or a physician or a researcher. And, you know, we'll start to produce. And it's been very exciting for me as an editor to see people who submitted as a, as a medical student, watch them as they've developed and, and what they submit. You know, maybe they'll start with a clinical image. And, and, you know, later on, we're starting to see them on guideline groups or in research groups. And it's exciting to have that opportunity to, to do that. Now, you know, you're essentially wrapping up a chapter of your career in Toronto, and maybe you can tell our listeners what you you were doing there, what positions you left, and you know, kind of what you were involved in, both maybe clinically and um, and in your research and administrative other sides. Yeah, so I've been in Toronto 19 years. It's hard to believe it's been that long. Um, two main jobs while I've been there. The first was to be the uh, CEO of the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences, which is a fairly large uh, health services research organization that's physically up at Sunnybrook, but not administratively hooked up with the hospital. And then for the last, uh, since 2006, the longest I've actually been at any institution, I uh, have been uh, a practicing physician at uh, St. Michael's Hospital and was recruited there to be the first uh, executive director of the Lee Cushing Knowledge Institute, which was a new uh, research building or institute built there. So uh, that's what I've been doing. Um, and learned a huge amount at ICES, particularly around uh, interacting with government and policymakers. My previous jobs have been entirely academic, and you know, ISIS, ICES, sorry, has uh, you know some of the world's greatest academic researchers, but they all do stuff that's very practical and policy oriented. So interacting with deputy ministers and stuff that was a totally big time learning curve for me uh, that was actually it was a lot of fun to be honest and then uh you know being able to with art slutsky who was our vp research at st michael's for a long time uh, helped build research at st michael's hospital not that it wasn't there before but i think it's a lot more prominent than it was before is was really great um i switched from being a general internist or what the americans i guess would call a hospitalist i can actually tell you to the patient i was i was post call on at sunnybrook actually and uh you know, I admitted an elderly patient with pneumonia and, and like got, and it was, po residents were all post-call and I got called to say she dropped her pressure and, you know, I got there and, you know, she was in rapid atrial fib and I sort of thought like, oh my God, I think the IV dose of IV metoprolol is five milligrams. Anyway, to make a long story short, I got her down in the ICU. She was fine. But I thought, you know, I just wasn't doing that enough and, and patients who are admitted to hospital these days are just so, so sick that, uh, basically, the volume outcome curve had caught up to me, right? And like that was that was not the last day I practiced medicine, but I didn't do another rotation on internal medicine anymore. And then, um, really, for the last eight years, I've been practicing palliative care. I really, actually, sounds weird to say, but I really loved doing that. Um, and a lot of people say, like, how could you? It must be so depressing. And 
The honest answer is, like, I actually personally hate the term a good death. Like, I think when I think of the people that I've cared for have died, I think most of them wouldn't describe their deaths as good. Uh, but I think almost everybody that we've been involved in, or the vast majority of people that we've been involved in, we've made their deaths better. Uh, and to be honest, as a practicing general internist, I worked as an, out, in, an outpatient clinic for a while. There were a lot of times I didn't think I was helping my patients all that much at all. Like I was the fifth doc that they seen for their chronic fatigue, and I just said, nothing useful to add. And that just was not the case in palliative care. And I just got a lot out of it, too. The Just the pace is a little slower than most other medicine and the ability to, or the privilege, uh, to sit down with patients and families and just kind of talk about their lives. And it was just really, really great. Uh, but with this job, and, and I was thinking... That was probably time anyway, but uh, I've uh, my last uh, my last stint on clinical service was about two weeks ago, so that's a part of my career that's that's now done. Which is a difficult thing to let go as a physician. Yeah, it it was, but like in all honesty, it turned out to be less hard than I thought it would be. I mean, I I just partly am ready. Like you know, I'm just ready not to be called at four in the morning anymore. Um, and then there's also that sort of anxiety. I, I think I was still a pretty good palliative care doc. And, you know, there is a time at which you're just not as good as you used to be. So I wanted to quit before then. Um, but but I think because I'm coming to a job like this at the CMAJ, it wasn't like I was kind of being forced to retire or I didn't have anything to look forward to. You know, th this is going to be fun too, right? And so so I'm I'm sad to see it go, but like all good things must come to an end. And so I, I wasn't nearly as sort of emotionally upset about it as I thought I would be. So it seemed like a, a natural and, yeah. and good time for yeah. this to happen. So looking back over your 19 years in Toronto, what would be your proudest moment or accomplishment? I guess maybe two. One would be with Art and Ori Rothstein and others. Uh, helping, you know, build the Lee Cushing Knowledge Institute, recruit, uh, like, just terrific people, like, you know, Sharon Strauss would be an example, um, to the place. And then, you know, secondly would be I go back to, you know, mentorship. Uh, you know, I think of, of just lots of fun supervising graduate students and, and, uh, and, you know, helping people think through their career options. So those would be the two things. Okay. So now we've been talking a lot about the really, really good things that have gone on, things that are going well, but, you know, it's equally important to acknowledge sometimes openly things that are not going so well. And and you did mention earlier a little bit about the debate uh, last night, um, that there wasn't a lot of talk about pharmacare. I actually knew, I, I wasn't listening to it, but my Uber driver and I discussed, he'd been listening. I said, how much was in there about pharmacare? He goes, not much. Yeah. Um, so what do you find most discouraging about the state of medicine and healthcare, the healthcare system in Canada today? Yeah, I mean, if I'm really honest, and I think it's an opportunity for the CMAJ to be honest, like I'm, I'm actually discouraged by the state of our healthcare system in Canada. I think it's, in some ways, I mean, people live longer, and we can for sure do really amazing things that we couldn't do when I was a med student. But, but you know, if you look at how Canada's healthcare system ranks in the world, if you look at the Commonwealth Survey, you know, we come 10 out of 11, with the 11th being the United States, right? And I think one of the 
one of the worst things that could ever happen to Canadian healthcare is we're actually next to the United States because we compare ourselves to them and we're essentially saying, well, we're comparing ourselves to kind of one of the worst healthcare systems in high-income countries. Uh, although I'd even say within the United States, there's obviously 300 different kind of health care systems, and some of them are pretty damn good, actually. Uh, but anyway, to, to, to answer your question more succinctly, I just I think if I look at the access issues um, and uh, you know the inequity issues around our healthcare system, I, I just think we're just not doing that well. Uh, and I do, and I don't see you know the fact that it wasn't even mentioned in the debate. Yet. Never mind pharmacare. I don't think healthcare was mentioned at all. Uh, that that I don't know. There's kind of a complacency. Um, I sometimes wonder. Like I worry sometimes about Megan, my daughter. Um, actually, I took my wife into the emergency department at a hospital that will remain nameless because of uh, what we thought was a significant eye injury. And six hours later, she hadn't even been seen. Uh, and by then, we just decided to leave because actually her vision had gotten better. Um, but but I'm worried that the people that we train like my daughter and, and sort of think that that kind of wait time is kind of normal, right? Like it shouldn't be normal. That should be like outrageous. So yeah, uh, I think we, you know, there, there's some really good things about our healthcare system. I think if you're acutely ill and you're admitted to a hospital, I still think you get like as good a care as probably anywhere else in the world. But uh, we got a lot of work to do. Well, it's interesting you should say that because certainly I've had the opportunity to live in, in a few different countries, um, England, Germany, and now um, I'm moving into San Diego in the U.S. and have had the opportunity to connect into the system there. And, and I think you're right. We, we can get sort of used to how things are in Canada and, ha and that's how it ought to be. And then you realize, you know what, there are, there are ways that things could be improved. We don't have to ex ex sort of accept everything that we see as the norm. Yeah. And, and, you know, my sense is we do. And we unfortunately get into this debate of private public when, you know, every single healthcare system in the world has, you know, part of the healthcare is provided, paid for privately, and part of it is paid for publicly. And, and, uh, I just don't see, and I don't, by the way, have a magical bullet on how to do this, but I just don't see where the bold innovations are. Uh, coming from around, I mean, we mentioned National Pharmacare. My God, we've been talking about that for, what, 25, 30 years, right? And it's still not clear that it's going to come along. Uh, so um, if I was the interviewer here, I'd be then sort of saying, okay, well, Andreas, like, wh what do you think is the optimistic thing? And I, I'm not sure um, and because I just, I just don't see a lot of boldness within uh, our healthcare system. And I, I think there, there are real pockets of excellence that are happening locally. Uh, and, you know, that might, and, but then the problem is how do you take those and how do you scale them? Uh, but, but I just, uh, I don't see how we're going to turn ourselves around to be way more innovative in healthcare. And by innovative, I don't mean fancy technologies. I mean, change in the way we deliver healthcare. And, and maybe some of it is patients are just going to force us to. Uh, which is, you know, one of the things I, one of the reasons I think I would like to see more patient involvement and partnership with the Canadian Medical Association Journal because, uh, um, you know, at a certain point they're probably going to start saying, um, you know, this is, this is unacceptable and it's got to change. Well, absolutely. We're going to talk um, very shortly about your vision for the journal. But, but again, one of the nice things about 
the journal being a national journal and having so many platforms to reach people in different ways, it's a really good place to have the kind of discussion, bring up the ideas that you're talking about that others have for what we can do for the healthcare system and, and how, um, and as you said, there's no, when things are complex, it's not going to be one thing, right. but putting together good minds, good ideas, that hopefully there'll be something that will help to inform and, and improve things. So what are you most excited about, Andreas, about coming into this role, this new role as editor-in-chief of CMAJ? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a personal excitement, and then there's an excitement around what we might do to build upon the great work you and your colleagues have done in the CMAJ. So personally, I'm just, um, you know, I just do love to write, and I do love to edit. Uh, and so actually having a job where that's a good part of like that's part of my job description is just really fun. Uh, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is is you know seven years ago or eight years ago now I guess I found out a website called Healthy Debate and um, you know bringing able to bring the patient voice there was really important to me and actually having fun trying to write commentaries aimed at maybe um, the public more than necessarily as scientific. There's two very sty different styles of writing, right? And I actually love doing both. So from a personal point of view, that's what'll be fun. And I'll, I'll, I'll make new friends here. And, and, uh, you know, so that, that'll be fun. Uh, and then around the, the, the journal, I do, you know, I, it's a, it has a long and storied history and, and, you know, I've only been here a day and a half and haven't had a chance to talk to people here. But, you know, my sense is if I had sort of three main priorities, they would be, um, number one, to try and attract and publish um, articles, the results of which, um, you know, have a chance anyway or need to be considered uh, by clinicians, policymakers or health system managers in how to deliver better care. So basically publishing articles that, that uh, you know, might have a different, uh, an impact on how we actually practice as clinicians or how we design or manage our healthcare system. And uh, we do publish articles like that, um, but I would love us to do more. And perhaps when we have commentaries to not only have commentaries from academics like myself, but actually a variety of maybe some patients who have the particular disease that is being considered in the article, uh, maybe a senior administrator somewhere, you probably have to be retired because they can't be that honest when they're not retired. But, uh, you know, on, <laughs> a retired uh, administrator who would sort of say, well, this is kind of the way the way the real world works, right? So that's number one. Um, and, and actually maybe finding a way to you know, could we be sort of have something like an innovator's corner or something in the CMAJ where like, it's not really peer-reviewed research, but someone has done maybe actually a really, really convincing quality improvement initiative to show that we actually really improved the care of patients and then have the CMAJ with its national reach be able to sort of say across the country, hey, maybe this should spread across the country because I think a big issue in our healthcare system is scalability. So that's number one. Uh, you know, number two would be to, uh, I really do think that, you know, it's called the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and, and we are independent. Uh, but I think it's important that the journal be relevant to uh, Canadian physicians, not just Canadian researcher physicians, but Canadian physicians. And I think, you know, in an era where there's more and more burnout, uh, where, and, and where, 
you know, docs in some ways are frustrated by private practice, but still, I think some many like me still love practicing uh, to publish work that sort of resonates with them, that that allows people to be, you know, honest about how they feel about their practice, uh, share share some maybe emotional experiences, etc. I'm not sure whether we do this, but I wondered about could we have a number of bloggers from different parts of the country that would on a regular basis reflect upon their practice and again not just academics probably largely not academics uh so i'd like to sort of reach out to our membership and and also to people here to sort of you know come up with two or three initiatives that, that really would speak to the to the practicing doc in a in a really thoughtful meaningful way uh, and then the final thing is, I, I do think, um, you know, we're all in this because we want to make the health of Canadians and our patients better. And and you know, um, I I'm not I, I do think we need to involve patients within not all aspects of the journal, but certain parts of the journal uh, much more. And um, and you know, I've been involved a lot in doing actually research. Uh, using a method developed in the UK by an outfit called the James Lind Alliance that brings together patients, um, clinicians, and what they call carers or caregivers to together come up with a top 10 research priorities in a particular area. The first one I ever did was in dialysis. And it's amazing. I mean, usually, not surprisingly, the priorities of patients are, they're certainly aligned with the priorities of the clinicians and researchers, but there's always two or three things that the patients say are really, really important that the clinicians and researchers weren't aware of or weren't aware of sufficiently. And I think it's the same thing with a medical journal in terms of, you know, deciding what do we want to write commentaries on? What do we want to focus on? I'm not saying patients should drive that entirely by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think they have a valuable, uh, you know, role and voice to play. Uh, so, I would like to see more um, patient involvement with within the uh, the journal. So it sounds like, the, as you said, there's sort of three big pillars. Make sure that the content really addresses practice um, policy, that we're reaching practicing physicians. And then lastly, as you said, the important voice of the patient informing what we do. And we certainly see that in the research area when we're starting to see more patient-oriented research like the collection um, that we have in CMAJ Open. So it sounds like I know right now you have a lot of ideas and you're going to try them, you're going to test some of them. I'm guessing that you'd be interested in hearing from the listeners to the podcast about some some ideas that, that, that you would consider and maybe their feedback on some of the things that you've talked about. So if somebody wanted to reach you, um, how would they go about doing that? Well, probably I, I would love to hear from people, to be honest. And uh, I guess my preferred way initially would be simply to email me at uh, Andreas.Lapakis, L-A-U-P as in Peter, A-C-I-S, at cmaj.ca. Um, and, uh, you know, I would, would love to hear from people and, and could arrange a phone call if, if, if that was uh, helpful uh, afterwards. So love to hear from people. And I know you're on Twitter. They can certainly direct message me on Twitter for sure. Sounds good. Well, Andreas, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I'm so glad that you were able to share some of these ideas with our listeners. So thanks so much for joining me today. That was delightful. Thanks. 
I've been speaking with Dr. Andreas Lopakis, CMAJ's new editor-in-chief. If you haven't yet subscribed to CMAJ Podcasts, we highly encourage you to do so on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or any podcast app. This way you'll be notified every time we publish a new podcast episode. And let us know how we're doing with our podcasts by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall. Thank you for listening.